Welcome once again to Cinemaholics, where we talk about the biggest and best films coming to theaters and streaming online. From the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm John Negroni, chief editor of Cinemaholics, film critic for Awards Watch, The Spool, and The Young Folks, and I can't even put out Twitter fires. From Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he's a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and he's been spying on his neighbors from his window all morning. It's Will Ashen. Hey. You can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, including our full archive, on cinemaholics.com, where we also have written reviews and other bonus content. You can write into the show anytime by sending us an email. Say hello. Be sure to let us know what you think of all the movies we're talking about this week. Go to cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com to hit us up. And if you'd like to support our show, help us keep everything here going on, please head on over to patreon.com slash cinemaholics. We also have Cinemaholics merch. If you want to purchase a Cinemaholics hoodie, shirt, mug, shot glass, that's on cinemaholics.com. While supplies last too, because we have a new logo, which means we're going to have new merch. So if you want the classic logo, you don't have all the time in the world. So links to that are in the show notes along with our Patreon and everything else. Hope to connect with you all soon. Will Ashton this week sees a cavalcade of films that hit us, but we chose three to talk about. Cavalcade. Oh yeah, because it's not just a caravan. Wow. It's it's not just a bunch. Sure. It's <laughs> it's a whole conglomerate. A whole cavalcade. Cinematic yeah. features. Now, of the ones we are watching and reviewing this week, they include those who wish me dead, woman in the window, oxygen. We have a couple in off topics for mini reviews because I, I didn't see one and you didn't see one, so we're gonna do a quick little mini review for each of those as well. But here here are a few of the films that we didn't see that came out this weekend. There's quite a lot. First of all, there was Spiral from the Book of Saw. I thought about seeing this, but here's here's the deal. I, I haven't seen a Saw movie since like Saw 5, so I really just don't have interest in the franchise. I know people were kind of looking forward to this. It stars Chris Rock, Samuel L. Jackson. I was curious. But yeah, there was a curiosity for me too, but I kind of saw some of the reviews coming out and I just decided, you know what? Not not making this one a priority, so we don't have Spiral on uh, sure. on the show this week. Yeah, I mean, I might see it at some point. If I see it soon enough, I might do a bonus review if I have time. But yeah, we're not talking about it this week. Sorry about that. There was also a pretty high-profile sure. TV series, a mini-series, I believe. I think it's a limited series from Barry Jenkins, who we, of course, mm-hmm. usually see films from him. This is a new show called Underground Railroad. The entire series or season, again, I'm not 100% sure if there's going to be a season two. I think it's just I think one it's a limited season. series. Yeah. Yeah, I believe it's it's a 10-episode limited series. It just dropped this past Friday, and we actually thought about making this our featured review. The thing was, we, we just didn't have time <laughs> to see the whole thing. We're hoping, though, to catch it and maybe talk about it on a future date. Really want to make that happen. Similarly, we also want to do a special thing for The Killing of Two Lovers, which is kind of hitting a limited release right now. That is a new indie film from Neon. And we are looking we are looking to see that one. There was also Army of the Dead, the new Zack Snyder film. Now that's in select theaters right now, but then it's going to be coming to Netflix later this week. So we definitely are hoping to talk about that one on next week's show. And then there's also Riders of Justice, same situation. There's a new movie called High Ground. There's a festival yeah. documentary called The Perfect Candidate. What is going on, Will? This is the second week in a row where just it just feels like 
every movie is getting dumped right now in the middle of May. Yeah, and it's weird because next week is extremely light on new releases to the point where I think that the biggest release next week is Army of the Dead, which is actually coming out this week in, like you said, select the- in select theaters. So I'm not quite sure what happened. I guess everyone's trying to get everything out before the hurdle of movies start to come in because the end of May is when Corella and A Quiet Place Part 2 yeah. and a few other movies are starting to come in. So I guess everyone was just like, we got to just get our stuff out before that happens to, I guess, what would be the start of this year's summer movie season. Or just movie season in general yeah. <laughs> at the box office. I mean, we've had yeah. some big movies come out, but nothing huge. And, you know, the biggest movie this, the right. year, I think, so far in America is probably Godzilla vs. Kong still. Yeah, but I mean, a traditional year, the movie, the summer movie season would have started, I guess, in the first weekend of May, like whatever that that Friday was. So, well, we were getting to the point where Marvel was starting to release things toward the end of April. So there was like, you know, Infinity War right. and Game, like those movies were coming out like last weekend before May. So it was like mm-hmm. summer was stretching even further. Right. Yeah. So I don't know if depending on how you want to look at it. Either Godzilla vs. Kong is the start of the summer movie season, or Corella slash Quiet Place Part 2 is the start of the summer movie season. So, however you want to look at it, it's coming. Or it's here. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think it's both, probably, uh, is my, my, uh, my guess there. I just looked it up, and yeah, yeah, Godzilla vs. Kong is the number three highest grossing film worldwide. It's the only American film in the top three. The first two are Chinese films. And yeah, the only other movies I'm seeing on the top 10 that are from like an American studio are Tom and Jerry and then Ryan the Last Dragon. So we, we really just haven't quite seen the domestic box office take off quite yet. I know people, some people are a little disappointed. Mortal Kombat kind of underperformed for, I think, what they thought maybe that first weekend was kind of promising that I was like, oh, maybe this, we could have another Godzilla versus Kong situation. But that movie's already kind of petered out. It's made thirty-seven million domestically. Godzilla versus Kong, like, almost hit a hundred million domestically, which is really impressive considering the pandemic of it all. So that's kind of where we're at. But all right, those are the movies we didn't talk about. It's time we talk about the ones we did. That's what we're here for. So first up, Will, you saw a screen, new Screen Life screen share movie. I, I forget what we're supposed to call these. I think Screen Life is like the, you know, is that it? Okay, because I've been calling them screen shares. I even said that in my written review of the film, which is now available on Cinemaholics.com. Nice plug. But sure. Um, but is it screen life? I that's what I've read. I, I think people are still trying to stake out the terminology. But let's start there. What what is what is that? What is a screen share? Screen life? What kind of movie is that? So that's a type of film similar to Searching and Unfriended and Hosted, or sorry, Host last year. Um, those are the type of films where you see all the action through the computer screens of the main characters. So basically, you're watching the movie the way that they would be seeing the events unfold on their computer screen. Now, some of the movies have, I don't know, I don't think there's been an outright bad major screen share movie that I've seen. I know there's like some like open windows that are supposed to be not great, but I haven't seen those. Um, but of the more prominent ones, I think they've all been pretty good. I know you really liked... Uh, searching, which is Great also movie. Uh, from from the same producers of Profile um, and Unfriended, I believe. Uh, I, I'm not going to pronounce his name right, but Timur um, Timur, uh, yeah, Timur Bekmatov is how I'm going to yeah. try to pronounce it. 
I know as a producer, he's I think he's behind both Unfriended movies and Searching, but this is the first one profile that he directed, which had its festival release in 2018, which would have made it around the same time as Searching was coming out, because this came out at the uh, the Berlin Film Festival, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. and Searching was at uh, Sundance. We should be clear, though, uh, the first Screen Life movie he's directed, he's directed a lot of other films. Uh, he directed, like, Wanted sure. and Ben-Hur yeah. and, uh, and the that, uh, Abraham Lincoln that... one, the Vampire Hunter thing, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, uh, I forget, what's that trilogy of Russian movies called? It's like with angels. There's and a like Night Watch, right? Night Watch. Yeah. Yeah. Day Watch. That's kind of his more, uh, his claim to fame. But for American audiences, it was wanted for sure. Yeah. That was the first movie from him I saw, I believe. Yeah. Because I saw that in the theater. Yeah. Back in the day. So You know what? Fun fact. That was the first R-rated film I saw in a theater. Whoa. <laughs> we had very different childhoods. <laughs> Sure. My parents took, I mean, we've had this conversation off the air, but yeah, yeah, my family took me to some not great movies for kids. Yeah, I actually, I, the only reason I was able to see it in theaters is because I had tickets to an advanced screening and my parents do not want to pass up a free thing. So they <laughs> indulged me in going to the theater to see this one. And I also remember it like the movie shut off halfway through because there was like a lightning storm outside. So there was like a weird intermission halfway through. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> it was like the face were trying to keep you out of there. I don't know. It was weird. But I did see the whole thing there. And that was the first R.A. film I saw in theater. So fun little factoid there. There you go. And, you know, it's come full circle because now you're watching Angelina Jolie movie in uh, The Drive-In. <laughs> so I guess, a, yeah. What a weird uh, lap around the decade you did. But yeah, so Profile. Uh, yeah. This premiered at the Berlin International Film Festival all the way back in 2018. But it's now only getting its release from focus features you mentioned this is screen life it's all through a computer what's the gimmick though for this one will what is this one all about so um the the movie itself is based on a nonfiction book called in the skin of a jihadist which is written by a journalist named anna early and it's um, she is not sorry my me again not pronouncing people's names i only correct <laughs> just in case she's listening i, I want to make sure i no that's that's valid i could be fair. wrong too so if i'm right, double wrong could be a, the uh scenario here sorry no, that's okay. Um, I certainly don't know. But the main character of the film is Amy Whitaker, and she is a plucky young journalist based in Europe, or actually, more specifically, I think she's based in London. And she's trying to get her feet wet, trying to get that major scoop that will push her into the big leagues. And the way she's trying to do that is by disguising herself as a young woman who is trying to join ISIS. And basically, we see from her perspective... Uh, how she tries to win over a um, a fellow or one member of ISIS who goes by the name of Bilal, or B-I-L-E-L, um, who is played by Shazaz Latif. Yeah. Um, and uh, the lead actress, I should mention, Amy Whitaker, is played by Valine Kane. And basically, from the movie's perspective, for a pretty brisk, I want to say, like, 105-minute runtime, we just follow her descent into ISIS from her computer as she's just trying to retrieve information, but she gets a little too close to the source. Um, I think as a movie itself, I don't know, I heard some people say that this was um, a little far-fetched or a little too unrealistic, but I feel of the, uh, what what we want to call them, screen life, screen share movies that we've gotten so far, this is the one that has its foot closest in reality, probably because it is based on a nonfiction book. So it didn't bother me as much. I will say that as the movie went along, you do have to kind of take some uh, leaps in logics in terms of like, 
why is there footage of the stuff mm. that she is uh, showing us? Because like they, they do show the process of her like recording the conversation. So they, they do establish like how she's able to like have footage of this, but they're also showing stuff from before then. And it's supposed to be like recorded video. So it's like, it doesn't really make sense in terms of like its own logic, like how this footage was retrieved. But again, with a type of thing like this, it, you're kind of here more for the visceral experience of it, like getting into this character's mindset. And obviously, like this is just trying to take a uh, different approach to something that you could easily see this type of story being done in a traditional film format, but having it online does add a sense of urgency to it. But at the same time, the fact that this movie was, like we said, from 2018, it takes place in 2014, it's coming out officially now in 2021, there is this weird sense of like, it's it's not really of one sense of time. Like it's trying to be this sort of forward thinking film in terms of like, here's what we can do with this technology. Here's what we can approach film in this new way. But it is also weirdly outdated at the same time. So that's something that kind of bothered me while I was watching it, but not enough to where I disliked the film. I, I found it to be generally pretty engaging and thoughtful, but um, at the same time, I wasn't like fully blown away by it in a way that I found myself really charmed by the Unfriended movies, and I was uh, pretty gripped with the first two-thirds of Searching. But by and large, I think it's pretty good. Um, this is the first one of these I saw on my laptop, so it also added a fun kind of uh, surrealism in terms of like, you know, see all these things and pop-ups have come up and be like, oh, is that on my end or is this <laughs> the movie itself? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and stuff, which is, it, it got a little frustrating for me just because it's just like, you know, I had to like kind of like uh, parse through what's what's the film and what's on my end. But um, in any case, yeah, I mean, it's a fun film. I enjoyed it. Like I said, it, it hasn't really stuck with me much since I've seen it. It's been about a week since I've seen it. So I don't think this one's going to really rock the boat in any particular way, but um, I think it's worthwhile. I'd give it like a solid B minus. It's it's a fun little thriller, but nothing truly substantial. Yeah, I'm a little surprised that it kind of was in limbo for so long, right? Because it played at South by Southwest and it didn't get acquired by anybody until literally this past March. <laughs> Focus just kind of dropped it here. I'm a little curious about that, though, because I mean, it's kind of a low budget movie. I could see this playing yeah. fine in like 2019, but right yeah or 2020 even like i yeah. don't know why they uh opted for a theatrical release because this would have obviously been fine if they released this on vod and people watch it on their computers or tvs right. like i don't really understand why they were adamant about it being a theatrical release but oh well well i think because no one had the distribution rights yet but i guess it just was one of those things that was just hanging out there and nobody wanted it for whatever reason so I don't know. I don't know if it has to do with the subject uh, matter or, yeah, it just kind of got lost my, in the shuffle. I don't know. I think the easiest answer is just that it didn't really have, like, a star. And it's not like a horror movie where it can kind of, like, sell itself on, like, sure. a goofy premise, like Unfriended. But then, like, obviously, like, Searching had, you know, um, John Cho, right? From Yeah, and Deborah Messing. Know. Yeah, Deborah Messing. So, you know, it has names in it that could sell it. And also had, like, the Sundance buzz going in for it. And this, I guess, had kind of a more... Um, muted response in comparison like it wasn't talked about quite as much so could have been a number of factors i don't exactly know but yeah it was very weird to see like i said a 2018 film that takes place in 2014 in 2021 all right well that is profile you said you were a b minus on it and yeah people can watch it right now uh you said through vod correct uh right now i believe it's only in theaters but it should okay. be on vod in the next month or so if i'm not mistaken all right well, then I, I want to talk about a new movie called The Jin, 
And well, did you do you have a chance to see this one or do you plan on seeing the Jin anytime soon? Oh, I haven't seen it, but I am curious to check it out based on the reviews. Yeah, yeah. This is another one that I'm kind of surprised is coming out now. This would have been kind of a fun little creepy thriller we could have watched in VOD last year. Kind of would have fit into that mold. But this is a very, very simple, low budget, kind of in a charming way, horror movie coming to us from IFC, Midnight. And... I like this one okay. Uh, th- this was a, a fun little watch. You know it, you know me, I tend to watch these horror movies kind of early in the morning. This one, though, I watched in the afternoon, so I, I met you halfway this time. And uh, this movie is a supernatural horror film. It was written and directed by David Charbonnier and Justin Powell, and it definitely feels like a fun little movie that they wanted to put out based on like just a cool little idea they had of like, okay, what if we to sort of place a horror movie in this one location. We put a little bit of, of a twist on the genie wish fulfillment, literally sort of plot that we've seen in a lot of movies. This one stars Ezra Dewey as a kid named Dylan and his father, Rob played by or Rob Brownstein, who plays a character named Michael. And the entire movie takes place in just this one little apartment that they just moved into. And we find out pretty early on that Dylan has asthma and he's also mute. And he lost his mother at some point. We don't know why at first. And as they're moving into this new house, Dylan has the entire apartment to himself. And his father is a radio DJ, so he's off in the witching hour doing radio DJ stuff. And the kid is sort of unpacking. And he comes across a peculiar book that gives him instructions, very mysterious instructions around the ability of maybe him summoning a jinn or a genie that can grant a single wish, but it has a few rules. And he starts to uncover those rules and maybe attempt to bring this genie himself over the course of the movie. I think we all kind of know where this is headed. (laughs) Some spooky stuff starts to happen and getting your wish granted isn't as simple as it may seem at first glance, especially if you're a kid. So a lot of this movie is a tense, suspenseful chase thriller where he has to come up with ways to survive the night. It's very thrilling in that respect. And what's very interesting about the setup of this movie is because he is mute, it is one of those movies where you have to sort of play into how the disability can sort of inform his thinking and his cleverness and how he sort of gets around some of these situations and is able to adapt to the dangers that are starting to haunt him. And there there were a few moments in this movie where I thought it was going down a direction that I think would have been really regrettable. It's like, oh no, it's this kind of movie. Okay, we're going to do this. But it surprised me in the very end. I think that some critics maybe will maybe not fully connect with what it ultimately does in the end. A lot of it is fairly predictable. There's nothing here that you are going to be like, wow, that is what a message. I, I've never thought, be careful what you wish for. <sighs> Taking that to heart. You know, we, we kind of know where this is going, but I think because it's happening to a kid, you can sort of chalk that up to like, yes, like I could see why this kid wants to do this. I could see why this kid is making these decisions. And I was able to connect and feel for this kid in a lot of really compelling emotional ways. I think he's a really, really good actor, Ezra Dewey. I I think uh, the, the fact that he doesn't speak to it, it, the entire performance has to be 
completely through his expressions, through his body language, and he really nails it. He carries the movie. He's one of the only characters throughout most of the movie. The rest of the characters are just sort of like plot devices, not really characters, right? And see, he does a, a tremendous job. They did a great job casting this one. And yeah, if you're in the mood for a kind of low stakes, bump in the night kind of thriller horror, this is definitely a satisfying one. Not amazing. And definitely there were some things in it that I could have done without, but I think it's a pretty solid B minus. And yeah, I guess we're we're doubling up on B minuses for mini reviews. But I guess that speaks to like it's you and me. We weren't like, ah, oh, you gotta see profile. Oh, you gotta see the gen. We were just kinda like, yeah, hey, you know, the, these are kind of right. not disposable at all. Like people worked really hard on these movies, but they are a little bit of like one of many movies that came out this week and it was just difficult to figure out what we what uh really demanded our time in reviewing together, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I do find it weird that the Spiral and the Gin came out now because they seem like premiered like September, August, or sorry, September or uh, October releases for the you know month of October, but um, or for the month of Halloween, I mean. But uh, oh well, yeah. you got to get these movies out. <laughs> Forgot to mention that it takes place in the '80s, which kind of helps too. It's very analog, and I liked that. I like I like how where it goes in that direction. But that is the Gin and Profile, yeah. our two mini reviews. I guess it's time for us to get into the main event, the big movie we saw that just came out on HBO Max and has just been released in theaters by Warner Brothers under the New Line Cinema banner. Man, what was the last time we saw the New Line banner? I, I'd have to think about it because it's been a minute, hasn't it? I think there was something fairly recently that came out through New Line, but I can't think of what it is off the top of my head. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to look at it because I... I I, I really can't remember um, what was probably their most recent. But I do believe, yeah, I do believe this is the first one that they've released through their new logo because Warner Brother has a new logo now. Yeah. And I think this is the first time they've released it through the new line thing. So that was a little weird to see, but um, I could be wrong there. I, there might have been something recently that I'm just blanking on. So interesting. So I looked it up and there, there's a couple of movies that, they helped with like Mortal Kombat and Super Intelligence, um, but I'm not seeing any where it's like straight up New Line because I don't remember seeing that label. Apparently, they they worked on The Good Liar, It Chapter Two, Blinded by the Light, The Kitchen. But yeah, I don't know. I, I maybe it's because I just can't remember seeing the logo. <laughs> I don't know. But regardless, yeah, because I mean, I saw Super Intelligence uh, in December, so that's probably the last thing I saw from New Line before this. I'll say Elf was the last one. Um, that is that is objectively false. Sure, like a rewatch of Elf? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so yeah, this is the latest in HBO Max's one movie per month that they're putting out that is also available in streaming. Last month was Mortal Kombat, of course, and then the month before that was Godzilla vs. Kong. This month is Those Who Wish Me Dead, which is being billed as a neo-Western action thriller, which is another way of saying it is kind of a modern, contemporary Western, very much of the, the same movies that Taylor Sheridan, who directed this movie, has done before with like Hell or High Water, Sicario, Wind River, these movies that really emphasize the American West and how it sort of fits into our modern present. A lot of these movies are about that. They're about the changes that the Western yeah. genre has really experienced since the old days, the old cinematic days where it was high noon and it was the searchers and all of that. 
Yeah, and also Yellowstone, which is um, on Paramount Network yeah. as a TV show. The Kevin Costner series, yeah. Yeah, which I haven't watched, but apparently is like extremely popular <laughs> uh, based on uh, just numbers on CinemaBlend. So I don't know what, I mean, I guess it's just appealing to a niche that really likes, like you said, Westerns or Neo-Westerns, and they're not really getting them from Hollywood outside of Taylor Sheridan. So he's definitely scratching an itch that, that seems to be uh, appealing to quite a few people, which is good for him. He is. Yeah, and he's doing it well by and large. I think that he, he tends to write. You know, he co-wrote this screenplay with Michael Corrida and Charles Levitt, and he hasn't directed a lot of movies. And I'll be honest, I just I don't think he has been the strongest director. He did direct Wind River, and I, I got to say, I, I just don't think that that movie was very was directed very well but i did like the script of that movie so uh that said i mean he's been he's just so far apparently been a great showrunner for yellowstone but i haven't seen that this movie really fits though into the mold of like the late 90s early 2000s mid-budget movie where you have the main actor being somebody who is kind of in that marvel superhero age where it's like they're vaguely in their 40s, right? And so it's like it's somebody who's like not that old, but they're not that young. And so you're Bruce Willis kind of actor, I guess at this point, somebody like uh he's back in the day would have been like Steven Seagal, but these days it would probably be like Will Smith, something like that. And in this case, that person filling that role is Angelina Jolie. And we kind of have like a mishmash of plots here. We have like a a smoke jumper plot where Angelina Jolie plays this firefighter who lives in montana and she's just gone through this traumatic thing and then we also have this plot where there's this pair of assassins in florida coming after a family a a father and son who are aware of some conspiracy back in montana we have john bernthal and medina sangwar as these as this couple who are expecting but they're related to the family who are on who's on the run and then everything kind of intersects i don't want to give a ton away because yeah, you know, th- this is one of those movies where I think the prologue is really long and it's easy to kind of give things away that happen like half an hour to an hour into the movie. So I'll keep it vague for now. But that said, th- this is kind of a twisty, turny sort of uh, action thriller in the purest sense. And my only major criticism, with, I was really with this movie throughout the whole way. I was interested in the characters and then the plot. And I thought the assassins played by Aiden Gillen and Nicholas Holt were really strong characters. I really liked them. Um, but I liked to hate them. I'll say it like that. All of that stuff was really working kind of in its own way. But I got to say, this movie just doesn't... The third act, I was a little bit disappointed. I, I didn't think the third act really landed as well as the first two thirds. But I think that it still works out and has its moments. And I ended up liking this movie quite fine. I think this is in a pretty solid one. But uh, what about you, Will? Yeah, I thought it was fine. You know, like you said, it's a nice throwback to the sort of star-driven, mid-budget character dramas that we just rarely get nowadays, especially from a studio like Warner Brothers or subsequently New Line. Um, In that sense, it was fun to see something like this again, you know, something that's clearly made for adults. It's a little pulpy, a little bit goofy at times, but it's also, you know, kind of playing it straight. You know, it's not not really like winking in terms of its approach it's not ironic in any particular sense it's it's pretty beholden to the western drama thriller genres in a way that i do respect and appreciate but at the same time i feel like it's kind of missing something that i've been trying to put my finger on and i haven't really figured it out yet i think part of it is that like 
you you do see the Taylor Sheridan touches, especially when the movie tends to slow down and let characters talk. For instance, there's a scene where Angelina Jolie is on a rock and she's on a phone or like some sort of a calm device and she's just reflecting on her own struggles. And I really like that Taylor Sheridan tends to establish characters through dialogue and action as opposed to like overbearing exposition and things like that. He usually kind of lets the characters dis, uh, disclose like their troubles through interactions and things like that. And I, I think those are the moments that tend to work for me the best. But one thing I really like about Taylor Sheridan's style is that he, I think by his own admission, he is allergic to exposition. So he generally tends to develop characters through dialogue and action, which uh, I think is also the case here. And when I tend to like the movie best is when characters tend to disclose their troubles or their uh, prerogatives in a way that, that feels a little bit more organic to the scene. And um, like I said, I think that's the case here as well. But at the same time, I don't think he's really doing a lot with what I find to be a fairly boilerplate uh, action thriller slash western that, you know, I mean, in some sense, I don't think it's trying to do anything particularly new or invent, reinvent the wheel in any way. But at the same time, I also feel like his character impulses don't fully mesh with what's a very studio-driven uh, action thriller character thing, which I don't know. It just, I'm like I said, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what's not really working for me. Because by and large, I, I agree with you. I think it's fine. Like I, I think the performances are pretty good. I like that the script is super tight. Um, I also tend to like that the movie itself doesn't uh, waste too much time in terms of like getting things going. Like just from like the get go, things are exploding and we're on the move. And I, I tend to appreciate that about Taylor Sheridan's style. But at the same time, I wasn't like fully gripped with it in a way that I found his other, I guess, a little bit more dark. Uh, other films were able to grip me a little bit easier. I was mostly gripped with it. I, I just think it, it's hard to get past how basic the directing is. It, it really just feels like it's not his strong suit because you have a lot of moments in this movie where you, you have to balance these sort of... And, and Adonis Gonzalez, a uh, film editor for Cinemaholics, he, was, he talked about this in his review, and I think he was spot on, about how like you have two kind of key themes of this movie or you have two approaches where you have these like really grounded emotional performances that you have to direct one way and then you have all of the like hootin' tootin' like gunplay stuff and I like those two things in this movie individually but they just don't really mesh together I, I, I think a lot of this stuff yeah. doesn't mesh together very well there's this whole thing where the assassins are like we'll distract the police using a forest fire it is such a dumb thing <laughs> like like when you really think about yeah. it like it's stupid. It, it really is stupid. And it, it really distresses them as too sociopathic in a movie that is trying to make them not 100% sociopathic, or at least the Nicholas Holt character, you see him waver here and there. So some of that stuff, I'm just like, this feels like a screenplay decision that a more competent director could have found a better way to bring to fruition. And so not to knock Sheridan too much, because I think he is successful in some of his directing choices. I think the actual shootouts in the third act and kind of throughout are really tense, really well done. I really felt 
the survival aspect of this movie. I really felt like these characters were in danger a lot. Uh, this kid in this movie is being just repeatedly traumatized. And I do like that he finds ways to just let the kid be a kid without the, the sort of annoying trope of like, well, we can't, we can't tell the kid what's really going on. We have to hide things from him the entire time. I, I kind of like that the movie sort of levels with him early on. It's kind of refreshing, actually. And I guess, yeah, that does feel like a very Sheridan thing to do. Uh, and also, Jolie, was it hard for you to kind of get past the fact that like she's a really great actor and she sells being a firefighter in Montana, but she can only do so much. It really was tough for me to swallow that like and this wasn't Angelina Jolie the entire time I saw her in this movie. Yeah, I mean, that was my main issue with the performance was that it wasn't a bad performance, but it just felt like a performance throughout, especially a film like this as trying to be a little bit more grounded, like a definitely more of a character drama. I just never really felt like, okay, I'm watching a character here. I'm just like, I'm watching Angelina Jolie play a character. And I don't mind that she's like, because I, I like that she's doing movies like this again, because for the past few years, she's either been directing or she's been doing movies like Maleficent or the upcoming Eternals. And so like she's been in blockbuster mode for a long time and she hasn't really done movies like this. The so last time I can remember her doing Something like this was By the Sea, which she also directed. So um, in that respect, I do appreciate that she is going back to this. But I do agree with you that it did feel like I'm watching Angelina Jolie play a character. And this is her, you know, like it, it felt like a Hollywood star playing a character, which I don't necessarily mind. It kind of reminds me of like Tom Cruise movies from the 90s, like something like Jerry Maguire, where it's like you don't fully buy that he's like a guy. But at the same time, he has that movie star charisma. And I, I think that's generally the case with Angelina Jolie as well. So I don't know. I was a little give or take on that as well. But I do agree with you that it did take me out of it because I never was just like, I'm watching her character. I'm just like, I'm watching Angelina Jolie's performance. Yeah, yeah. I feel the same way. I, It, it is kind of strange to me, too, that I mean, this wasn't supposed to be her like follow up movie to I mean, let's see. So she did Maleficent. Uh, Mistress of Evil, and then she had a she had a role in that um, Brenda Chapman movie, Come Away. That I don't even remember if Come Away actually got like any sort of actual oh, release. It was just in the festival. Yeah, right? I did see that, but that was like a supporting performance. It was, yeah. So we haven't seen her yeah. kind of in a lead performance since Maleficent, Mistress of Evil. Because then in mm -hmm. One and Only Ivan, she was just like a voice. And we were supposed yeah. to get Eternals last year, and so that kind of got pushed right. down. So now we have this movie and yeah it does feel like a very curious decision for her as an actor to do something like this i think that in a lot of her roles she's really leaned her star power in her favor the fact that people just recognize her so quickly and so easily that yeah it makes sense to put her in these like larger than life roles like maleficent and mr and mrs smith and yeah even something like alexander where she has to be like the mother of like a great conqueror like that kind of thing really works for just how how iconic she is as a human being and yeah so this it is kind of yeah. curious that she was cast in this kind of movie which really leans on her i mean i applied her for trying going back to something that she used to do more regularly mm -hmm. but yeah i struggled a bit yeah i mean the last time i saw her in something like this as far as i can recall that was just like a character piece and not like a genre film was uh changeling the clint eastwood movie but that was like kind of more of like a melodrama. So so like that like kind of made sense that she would play a little bit broader. But I don't know. It just seems like her performance doesn't really fit Sheridan's vibe. 
Like he's definitely trying to do something like like I, when I think back on like Emily Blunt and Sicario, I know he didn't direct Sicario, but like she is able to kind of do like kind of bigger movie star roles, but also do something that's like a little bit more subtle and a little bit more grounded. And I don't know if I don't know. If, I think she's a little bit better at like balancing that type of performance as opposed to Angelina Jolie at this point, where she is just such a movie star that I don't know if she can really rein it back that much. But like I said, that also kind of added to the ninetyness of it, so it was also sort of appealing to me at the same time. Yeah, I mean, she's one of the last big Hollywood stars in the traditional sense. I'd say, and Emily Blunt kind of represents the kind of new Hollywood star where just because she's in something doesn't mean it's going to be successful, but when she's good in something good, people really come out for it. So all that said, I yeah. I thought she was fine in this on a technical level, but yeah. I mean, I thought her performance was like very thoughtful. Like it, it definitely was a very considerate performance. I just never really fully bought it as like I'm watching her character. I just am watching her performance. I do think John Bernthal's character in here is a little bit hacked. And I I do appreciate that Sheridan in his movies has allowed Bernthal to kind of not just be the standard Walking Dead bad guy, you know, kind of a scumbag. Also not like the Punisher anti-hero character. He, I don't know, he just gives Bernthal like way more sympathetic roles than he tends to get cast in, which I appreciate. But in this movie, he, he doesn't really get to do all that much. He's just kind of like kind of like trudging along the movie i was much more invested in nicholas holden aiden gillen and the assassin characters and they are a bit tropey for sheridan sheridan always kind of has like bad guys like this <laughs> you know we, we don't know much about them but we just sort of see we get to know them through their actions more than anything else but yeah i thought holden gillen were a really like I, I hate to use the word fun but fun pair <laughs> like i think that they had like a really good rapport a, a really good like i believed that these guys were dangerous like very very quickly i agree with you about holt there's like something kind of like i don't want to say unhinged but there's something like like i could like um, i could see him being someone who is like a little bit more unpredictable but he's like trying to rein it in gillian i've just seen so many times in these stock villain roles that i don't know i, I didn't really think he added too much to it I don't think he did a bad job, but it just kind of felt like another stock villain performance from Aiden Gillen to me. I don't know. I thought maybe because the movie lets him kind of change throughout, he kind of starts to become a little bit more unhinged himself. And I would tend to agree with you because I think Aiden Gillen, I mean, I tend to not really be into his performances ever since the whole Littlefinger Game of Thrones thing and how that really like put him in a box as an actor. And with the exception of maybe something like Sing Street, where I, th I think he gets a little bit more room to do something different. That said, though, I, I think that it really rests on the contrast between him and Holt, because he's kind of like the, the mastermind. Holt is like the dutiful gun who is willing to sort of do whatever he's told. But then you sort of see how he processes the decision making of when he is given an order. And yeah, I, just, I found that maybe because the rest of the movie was not fascinating at all. Maybe I, I give it a little bit of extra credit for that. Yeah, I mean, Gillian's like the guy with the code in these films. Like he like he's a bad person and he'll do bad things but he also has like a moral code and nicholas holt's obviously the one that's like inexperienced so he doesn't really have that morality and i think on paper that's interesting but their performances i thought they're fine like 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 with everything else in the movie like i didn't dislike it but i felt like there was some component there that could have been a little bit more interesting or something that could have been fleshed out and the movie just opted to rein it back and didn't really do a whole lot with it 
Well, I think generally speaking, I, I probably like this one a bit more than you did. I'm a B minus, pretty high B minus, mostly a, almost a B if the third act had just been a little bit better, a, a little bit tighter. I, I think that actually it is almost a little too tight. And I felt myself kind of being like, they, they set this up to be a little bit more epic in scope. And it really just came down to a handful of chase scenes that I don't think are that effective. And at the same time, I was kind of moved by some of the performances and, and I thought I, re I really thought that Angelina Jolie and her relationship with the kid character in this, played by Finn yeah, Little. Finn Little. Yeah. I actually thought that really worked. And it, it, it was kind of the key to this entire movie working in a lot of ways. So uh, I liked it. I think uh, if you are into dad cinema, you like dad movies, this is definitely one of them. And I think it's going to do the job. But uh, yeah, where do you land? Uh, I'm not too far from you. Like I said, I think it's fine. Like I, I, I think it's a good like... TNT type movie like if you're flipping through channels and this comes on a TNT you'll watch a couple scenes and you'll probably you know like on like a 2 p.m. Saturday afternoon you'll you'll probably enjoy it but I don't think it's necessarily good or great at what's trying to do I, I admire Taylor Sheridan for making a pulpier movie than his other films like some of his other ones especially Wind River which I actually I think I like a little bit more than you just a bit based on the way that you're talking about it um, I, I do agree with you that, that movie gets a little too like down on itself it gets a little a little like too moody in a way it's, a it's just bleak. like all right like yeah. yeah it's like calm down taylor shared <laughs> yeah there are there is hope for people in general sure um yeah i mean i think that's one fallback i think his best film i i would say is probably hell or high water at this point like that's his tightest script and i think that's probably like the best dialogue best characters and stuff like that and i don't think he's quite reached that level yet and i don't know if that's because of his direction per se but um, I, I, I don't think he's a bad director. I just, like I said, like, I think his impulses are kind of going against what the studio is wanting from him, which is a, you know, like a throwback sort of cheesy character piece with big stars. And he's trying to do something a little bit more reined in and like, uh, and, and turned, uh, what's the word intuitive and having like, you know, kind of more grounded characters with, a a weighted conscience and stuff like that. And and I don't think those impulses quite mesh together, sort of like what Adonis is referring to based on the way you're describing his review. I'm curious to check it out. But um, yeah, I think for me, it's a high C plus. Like I think it generally works. And, and I do agree with you that the uh, relationship, kind of the mother-son dynamic between Finn Little and Angelina Jolie is, is at least pretty good. Like I, I, I found it to be nice enough, but... Um, I don't know. I think this is maybe a little too throwaway. Like, there's just not enough here that really stuck with me, either morally or quality-wise, to make me go like, "All right, this was like fully worth the investment that I put into it." But not a bad film, just sort of fine. All right. Well, that is those who wish me dead. Critics are basically where we're at. It has a 64% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average rating of 5.7 out of 10. So yes, a little bit above average, pretty mixed overall. Most critics are liking it fine, that kind of thing. And I think that pretty much matches where we land ourselves. The movie is 100 minutes long and you can watch it right now on HBO Max or in select theaters. Next up, we're talking about a new, well, the next two movies are going to be Netflix movies technically, but this one is a Netflix movie that has sort of been long in the tooth here. So Woman yeah. in the Window or The Woman in the Window is a psychological thriller directed by Joe Wright and Tracy Letts did the screenplay. It's based on a few things. So it's 
supposed to be more so based on the novel by A.J. Finn, um, a 2018 novel. But there is also The Woman in the Window, the 1944 Fritz Lang film, which itself was adapted from a novel as well. And so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of women. There's a lot of windows. And I, yeah. I was actually kind of revisiting the 1944 film myself pretty recent uh, last night after I watched Women in the Window. And there's a few connective tissues, but not much, which I guess is why they're, they're really not billing this in any way as a remake. It's not uh, very different uh, setup for the film, to be totally certain. But yeah, it just hit netflix and it's interesting because this movie gosh this so fox uh, originally had this movie they were going to uh i think adapt this novel like before it had even come out because this was back in like 2016 so there's a a whole story behind this movie uh where they they shot it in 2018 so three years ago and they had to do a bunch of reshoots they did some rewrites it got delayed to come out in 2019 and then you know what happens next. The Fox deal. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but it, it really was supposed to be theatrically released by 20th Century Fox in 2019 at that point because it was delayed after like Disney took over Fox, obviously, and they set a new release date for just like a year, literally a year ago yesterday, uh, May 15th, 2020. But then they took it off the calendar because of the whole pandemic, uh, you know, we always got to find a way to mention that every episode that, yeah, there you go. Sure. Whoa. I mean, it's unavoidable. Now we're getting this thing a year later because Netflix acquired the distribution rights um, just this past fall from now it's called 20th Century Studios, which is why when you watch this movie on Netflix, it starts with the 20th Century Studios logo, which is pretty wild to me that, it you know, I, I still can't get used to it. I don't know about you, but it, literally it's like 20th Century yeah. Studios and you're like, man, they took out the Fox. But then the movie starts and it's like Fox 2000 presents. Yes. So I thought that was kind of. Uh... <laughs> well, I mean, you're only mentioning like half the issues that the movie has gone through. <laughs> Um, yeah, I know. I'm kind of glossing over a bunch of stuff. Uh, I mean, it's worth mentioning that uh, A.J. Finn, the author of the book, uh, there's a pretty scandalous New Yorker article about him that came out either in 2018 or 2019 that, right, uh, yeah. you know, just pretty bluntly said that he's a serial fabulous, among other things. Um, and that, you know, like he it basically just spelled out that he uses book as a way to like kind of like push himself into like the like prestige drama category or like whatever these like like gone girl and like girl on the train like these like pulpy yeah. thriller novels that, are, that got like these prestige dramas and like there's obviously something kind of cynical about like his approach to it to say the to least be, to be clear so what you're saying is cause i don't know if people are like totally caught up he made a bunch of stuff up about his life is the the short yeah. of it um or he's being he was accused of making things up like saying that his mother mm-hmm. um suffered from cancer, cancer. and yeah. it, like lost her to a brain tumor yeah and his brother he claimed his brother committed suicide all kinds of stuff and he apparently like didn't he like take it all from a film literally called copycat i think so yeah it, it's a wild article i mean very well written article but it just like man i don't know like, if this is even half true like this guy is well um but anyway he and he, i think he he blamed it he blamed it on his bipolar disorder yeah which yeah. i mean i'm not i'm not really you know i'm just explaining the facts like i don't really want to dive into it too much truth be told but just um, saying that's his defense yeah. uh yeah sure fair enough um but also uh this is i think possibly the last film they'll be credited to producer scott rudin 
which is also kind of weird to see uh, here because he has been. Uh, I mean, it's been oh, well known that he's that. been uh, 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 pretty well known as a uh, serial abuser as well in his workplace. Um, and now he's t- kind of getting repercussions to it. And his name has been pulled from a lot of upcoming films. But for a reason, it is on this film. So I think that's a contractual thing. Because, I mean, this, this is the whole thing with the Scott Rudin stuff coming out was just this past April, like like a month right. ago. <laughs> so I don't I, I think that the, yeah. ba- the way that movies work, like you just can't make cha- a change like that without violating some sort of contract that quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, like you said, it's the last Fox 2000 film, possibly the last Fox film. I don't even know at this point what, what's going on with Fox. And uh, also I think Tracy Letts and uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who were previously going to do the score for this film have both basically disowned it uh, publicly being like, yeah. this is not our vision. Uh, Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor just like, we pulled our score from this thing. So, but then Danny Elfman was like, then Danny Elfman yeah. was like, I can do I'll, it. I'll do it. I got it. <laughs> this this Give movie. Give me two hours and uh, two cups of coffee and I'll put something together. Yeah, exactly. This movie <laughs> this movie wants to, you to forget about Fox so much that it almost renamed its character, who is Dr. Anna Fox. Yeah. That was a bad joke. Anna 20th Century Studios. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, my, my point is just that this movie has gone through the ringer. Uh, not only because of the pandemic, and uh, I almost sort of feel bad for it at this point. I guess. I mean, there's people in it who, like, there's great actors. I mean, this is one of those movies where you're watching it and you're like, who's next? Like, who are we going to see next? We have Amy Adams, of course, starring, but we also have Gary Oldman. We have Anthony Mackie. We have Wyatt Russell, Brian Tyree Henry, and then Julianne Moore. And then at one point, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee just shows up. And I'm like, of course. Like, why not? Um, and of course, Tracy Letts gets a fun little role since he is a producer and, a sc- or sorry, he wrote the screenplay. I was thinking of how Tyler Perry was in Those Who Wish Me Dead and was a producer. Yeah, he was pretty good in that. I forgot to mention that. I thought, you know, I, I actually like him in like supporting actor mode. Yeah, he's he's an imposing guy. He should be in roles like that more yeah. often. He's good at Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, but anyway, yeah. he's not in this film. <laughs> yeah, we, we're <laughs> squeezing a little extra part of that review. Yeah, Women in the Window. Uh, so the story here. And uh, like like we said, borrowed quite a bit from copycat and a lot of other things. I mean, that's the first thing you'll notice about this movie is like, I feel like I've seen this before, <laughs> you know, between its devotion to Rear Window, a lot of Hitchcock. Right. Uh, Spellbound. Disturbia. You know, it just goes on and on. But the setup is that we follow a child psychologist named Anna Anna Century, um, no, Anna Fox, played by Amy Adams, who lives all by herself in an apartment in Manhattan, uh, we quickly learn that she's separated from her husband, played by Anthony Mackie, and her daughter, Olivia. Uh, but she still talks to them basically every single day. She has something called agoraphobia, which means that she is unable to leave her house. She feels like she has to stay in there. And for that reason, she kind of spies on all of her neighbors from her window, hence woman in the window. And while she is observing a new family moving into the house across the street, she starts to maybe build a very strange kind of tense sort of dynamic with this family as one by one, they each come to her apartment, to her apartment for a visit. And from there, things get a little, little strange, a little weird. So Gary Oldman plays the father figure of the family across the street uh, we also have Julianne Moore, who uh, plays this woman named Jane Russell. And we also have a kid named Ethan, 15-year-old kid, played by Fred Heckinger, who's the first one to come visit her, a teenager. 
And yeah, as the movie goes on, you can tell something is a little bit off. Uh, Amy Adams' character is on a lot of meds. She is having a little bit of difficulty with her tenant, David, played by Wyatt Russell, who lives in the basement. And at some point, she even tries to get the police to help her out. And one of the detectives, played by Brian Tyree Henry, is just trying to kind of keep her subdued, trying to like help her maybe, maybe not keep doing all this spying, taking photos of her neighbors, that sort of thing. This is a movie with a lot of effort. Like they tried with this, I think. Like they really wanted to make a movie that was tense and dynamic and and had a lot of characters that could be like a prestigious sort of noir film. I mean, naming something Woman in the Window certainly lends a lot to that considering that the Fritz Lang film helped kind of create the noir genre. But I got to say it for me, really difficult to get past how tropey and familiar and obvious this script is. I think a lot of people who've watched more than a few noir films are going to see a ton of stuff coming here. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's just too predictable. I, I haven't called the twist in an Amy Adams movie this quickly since Arrival, but uh, that's, that's, that's a little braggy. Sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, Will, what did, what did you think of the woman in the window? Yeah. I mean, this is almost comically derivative of other films. <laughs> Uh, to the point where it, it, yeah, it, I, I mean, I haven't read the book that it's based on, but if it is close to this, which I don't even know if it is because as you were mentioning, it's gone through so many reshoots that I don't even know if this is a faithful adaptation of the book. Um, it could just be, you know, ha- so hackneyed and Frankenstein at this point that it doesn't really resemble what was in the text, but the material itself just feels so boilerplate, like even by like throwaway paperback, airplane novel standards this feels like terribly predictable and derivative but um there is like you said like this kind of prestige sheen to it where it has like all these big stars like you know like there's a lot of visual flair to this in a way that i actually did kind of admire i really actually did enjoy the cinematography from bruno denimbal uh i'm probably mispronouncing that as i mispronounce most names but yeah, i think um, it's bruno de bono but i i'm not 100 yeah. sure myself yeah, but I mean, there's, you know, there's like a lot of fun, like blocking and staging here, like to the point where it kind of felt like, look, this movie is is not going to pick up. Let's just get really weird with the visuals. <laughs> and like, you know, like there's just like a big apple that floats on the screen and then like, you know, like, you know, just like kind of weird blocking a lot of like the Palma S blocking. Like that's actually I felt I was thinking back on more of the Palma stuff than I was Hitchcock, even when the movie was sort of hand-fisting Hitchcock stuff into the the film. Um, I just kept, especially because the movie has like this kind of like trashy thriller quality to it that because the movie itself is so inconsistent in style, it it almost seems to indulge in a weird way that, um, I don't know, I didn't hate this film the way that some folks are. Like some folks are really bringing their knives out for this film. And I, I guess I just found it to be so, uh, like I said, trashy and throwaway with these big name stars that, um, you know, I, I found it to be almost amusingly inert, but uh, not in a terribly offensive way, with the exception maybe of there's one character in the film who is portrayed potentially as autistic that could be seen as offensive. Yeah, it's funny you say amusingly inert, too, because that's kind of how I felt about his last movie, Joe Wright, um, Darkest Hour, because I thought so he comes out with Pan in 2015, trying to kick off a franchise. 
Pan famously, uh, at least infamously for me, it was just one of my least favorite movies of that. I just hated that movie. And I hated just how shamelessly pandering it was to trying to generate or regenerate an IP in one of the most uninteresting ways. I think I'm actually kind of in the same vein with that film as I am with this film, where like, I, I agree with you, it's a bad film and it makes a lot of baffling decisions, but I was almost half amused by all the baffling decisions that it made, and that's kind of where I'm at with this film as well. <laughs> it's just weird, because, you know, like, I'm not the biggest fan of The Soloist, which he did in 2009, but, I mean, after films like Hannah and Anna Karina, and he, of course, did Pride and Prejudice, Atonement, I mean, we know this guy can make movies that at least satisfy critics and can get a lot of awards attention, right? And... Yeah. It's just, it's kind of baffling to me where his career has sort of gone at this point. I mean, we, we should say Darkest Hour did get a lot of awards buzz for Gary Oldman, obviously, and it got nominated. And uh, did, didn't Gary Oldman actually, it got nominated for Best Picture, but didn't Gary Oldman also win the Oscar? Yeah, he won for Best Actor. Yeah. More of a legacy Oscar, right. to be fair, but he did win. <laughs> he was yeah. up against, yeah, he was up against Daniel Day-Lewis, and they were just like, he's got enough Oscars, and you know, that kind of, that's kind of the situation. But yeah, that's kind of how I'm feeling about this movie, Woman in the Window, where it, I wish I saw them kind of going more full tilt into some genre unpredictability. I mean, it does it a little bit. There's like a car in a living room at one point where I was like, man, where's this movie? Like, this is the kind of movie I want to see where they just kind of, I I think though where the movie loses me is how it frames all of this stuff around mental health. This movie is about as precise and, considerate with mental health issues as i guess you can reasonably expect from a hollywood filmmaker i just really just don't get the sense that joe wright and and, and i hate to say it, but tracy Letts, you know i just i feel like they're just trying to really heighten the mental health experience in a way that is just like come on like i i, I just didn't buy it all right i'll i'll let tracy Letts off the hook because like i said for one i think that's the material and two i think that might be the reshoots Sure. Like, I don't know like what the original version of this movie was. And, ba- and like I said, Tracy Letts basically said, this is not my movie. Like, don't like whatever I did with this okay, is not enough. what the, the studio wanted. So um, I'll, I'll let him off the hook just because like it seems like he made a more like subdued, thoughtful movie that audience like test audience are just like, why is nothing happening? Like, why are we? Wh- I don't understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't actually know what happened with the test screenings. But from what I was told. Audiences were confused about things, so they added a bunch of stuff. They retested the film. It didn't get a better response, so Scott Rudin and his team were just like, screw it. Just just throw it out. <laughs> yeah. We, we This one got burnt in the, the oven. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I Like I said, I don't really know what the original version of this movie was. I'd be curious to see it, you know, release the right cut. Why not? Um, just because I'm kind of <laughs> curious let's cut. to know what the original version is. But, like, this movie feels like it's on, like, 1.5 speed the whole time. Like it's it's it feels like it's constantly like breathless, like trying to get everything out, and I have to assume that is because of the reshoots. Like they're just trying to jam so much information into this movie that it's almost kind of dizzying how much they're trying to do for a like almost two hour runtime. And I think that also kind of adds to the weirdness of it and like all the baffling decisions that I made. That like it's just constantly throwing things at you. That like it's kind of hard to be bored by it because it's just constantly trying to like divert your attention or do visual tricks or like do all these different things in a hyper derivative narrative. But yeah, that doesn't make a good film in the least. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where I could see people watching this and, you know, maybe they won't catch some of the big twists that, you know, like if you've never seen like rear, if you haven't seen a lot of these movies, (laughs) 
um, and you're just quite, sort of like breezing Netflix and you like Amy Adams. Sure. I, I could see people watching this and like, that's not to talk down to anybody whatsoever. It's just like, it's just is one of those films that punishes people who watch too many movies <laughs> because it's just hard to get through it. Cause you're like, when are you going to get to the part? We know, we know this is about gaslighting. We know. And that is another thing. The gaslighting of this movie just feels a little bit like, I don't know. I, I, it just, it rang very hollow to me, what they're trying to say here about, uh, we've seen a lot of movies kind of go down this road of like how mental health is in a way like used to like gaslit people. And I'm not saying movies like that shouldn't exist at all. Like not, not saying that whatsoever, just that if you're going to do it, I think you need to do it in a more interesting kind of compelling new way, not just sort of do what we've seen before. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing for me is that like the material based on how it's presented here feels super cynical in terms of just like trying to ride the coattails, of other book success and other story success. And the movie almost feels a little cynical in the fact that it's trying to be as prestige drama for presumably award attention, but because it's gone through this whole rigmarole of reshoots and like people entering and leaving the project and stuff like that, that almost kind of regains it's sort of like trashy B quality, <laughs> which is where I find the divide kind of fascinating for me. Is that like, by being worse, it almost becomes better, <laughs> if that makes sense. Almost. Yeah, and, and kind of, I, I can kind of see what you're saying there. Yeah, yeah, this has been a tough time for Amy Adams. You know, I think she's still as talented as ever, but she's just picking projects like this. And uh, I haven't seen Hillbilly Elegy, but based on what I, I know of that movie, um, just, just projects that don't really suit yeah. her talents. And, you know, there was like, there was also Vice, I guess, which I just really didn't feel like she made much of an impression. I gotta say, I don't think I've really... I thought she was all right. Well, I, honestly, I think the last thing I saw her in that I thought I was really like, hooked with her performance is probably sharp objects the uh the hbo miniseries which okay yeah yeah i haven't seen that but i heard it's good movie wise yeah i mean we've gotten this and like you know her lois lane thing <laughs> and like the the two rounds of justice league we've gotten recently so yeah i i just think that i i'm hoping that amy adams is going to be part of some films that kind of harken back to i think her at her actual best as an actor i mean i thought she was pretty good in justice league the cider cut um not the theatrical version like theatrical version everyone was bad in that but um yeah i mean i agree with you with hillbilly elegy a pretty rare bad performance from amy adams and it's like that was the type of performance where she clearly was trying so it was just kind of embarrassing to watch her this wasn't embarrassing to me it was just like it felt like she was just kind of confused like she didn't really know what to do either because of the reshoots or like the character was just so thinly drawn out that she just couldn't really do much with it that like she was like I mean it makes sense like why she joined the project but like probably through the whole thing she could see it was falling apart and she was just like I'm just going to try to do my best to salvage this thing and you know she couldn't which I don't blame her for but I do agree with you it is a shame especially for so many people who want Amy Adams to finally get that Oscar I know <laughs> not only to uh you know make a good film again but you know actually finally get the critical acclaim that she deserves and uh she is straddled by these lackluster projects that don't service her well yeah I think that really calls it so I I'm a C plus on this movie I, I don't think it's terrible I agree that I think yeah critics are really coming out for this one and I think there's a lot to criticize to be totally certain but it is effective you know and as derivative as it is it's at least executing the sort of stuff 
you would expect in ways that actually mimic a decent movie. So it's it's not like you're going to... I don't think this is a slog to get through necessarily. In fact, there were some parts that I thought were actually in the territory of like, this is so schlocky. I can actually kind of just get in, kind of get into this and it's on its own terms in a a way. So not a waste of a total, you know, this, this is such a Sunday matinee, a curiosity satisfier. If you're really bored, it's that kind of movie for me. Yeah. I think schlocky is probably the word I was searching for earlier, because like I said, like, it, it went into this like trying to be sort of prestige and subdued and because of all the reshoots and all this stuff it became this kind of schlocky b movie by accident i guess which i guess to me like i said it makes the movie worse but at the same time it also makes it a little bit more fun than i think it might have been otherwise but like i said i'd be curious to see what the original version of this movie was just out of curiosity because you know like clearly there's stuff in here that i think is good like i think the cinematography is good i think uh, Julian Moore actually gives a pretty good performance here. And uh, even like her scene with um, Amy Adams where they're just like taking cat photos and drinking wine. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's fine the way it's supposed to be. And I kind of wish that movie, the movie had that energy throughout. It wasn't taking itself so seriously at other points. Like there's like, like you said, like, like, like there's times where it's like trying to mimic Rear Window and these other Hitchcock movies. And it's also trying to do like the De Palma thing. And it's also trying to be a little bit more cerebral, almost in like a, I'm thinking of ending things sort of way. And it's just like, I think the movie's at its best when it's just kind of like leaning into its absurdity and goofy impulses and just being this kind of throwaway schlock movie that, uh, you know, isn't good by design, but it's a little bit fun to watch on a Netflix Sunday afternoon. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'll give it a a sort of bemused B, uh, C plus, almost a B plus. Uh, <laughs> this thing is going places. Yeah. Like I said, it's not good i don't know how you could really justify its quality but considering what it's been through and everything that has going against it i'm kind of surprised it was actually pretty watchable and silly throughout like it 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 definitely ended up better than i anticipated but not really i guess in the way that it was intending to be better all right well that is a double c plus from us this movie like like we've mentioned a couple times critics ain't loving it 29% 29% on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, the average rating is 4.9 out of 10. So it's one of those movies where I think people are rating it rotten, but they're not saying that it's like, oh my gosh, a one out of 10, two out of 10. They're just kind of like mixed to negative, which I think kind of, I, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. This movie, another movie that's only a hundred minutes long, the same exact runtime as those who wish me dead. So your, your choice between Angelina Jolie and Amy Adams has gotten even more difficult if uh, we were even having difficulty deciding between which of these two movies to do first we were like well let's let's look at the runtime exactly the same uh (laughs) all that but all right that is the woman in the window it is now available to stream on netflix our last movie of the week oxygen this is a new french film it is a sci-fi thriller that was directed and produced by alexandra aha who always great to see new material from him and it, this one kind of came out of nowhere for a lot of people i i certainly did not know that he was making a new movie this year uh, i think his last movie was a uh, crawl if i'm not mistaken from 2019 but yeah this movie oxygen stars melanie laurence another uh fun surprise it was great to see her pop up in this movie she is the lead character and one of the few characters we actually see in this movie because this is so remember buried with ryan reynolds uh where he's like trapped in a coffin yeah. 
I, I remember I that, like movie. that movie a lot. That's a good movie. Uh, this yeah. this is that, but in a cryogenic pod and kind of like the near future. So it's like a sci-fi twist on the buried alive genre. Not that she's buried alive necessarily, but Melanie Laurent plays a woman she, who doesn't know her name. She doesn't even know what she looks like, but she wakes up in a cryogenic pod. She doesn't know why. And the only thing she has is a computer system named Milo, a glorified voice assistant, and she has to try to outwit it to try to be like, okay, I need to make a call. Oh, you can't do that. Well, uh, can you do this? And she like tries to work around her limitations because her oxygen levels are running extremely low in the pod and it's decreasing at a steady rate to the point where you, she even begins to start hallucinating and she has to find a way out. If she tries to open the pod, she gets electrocuted. And there's a lot going on in this movie. Like a surprising amount of things are going on in a movie where we are only in one literal location the entire time and almost the entire time at least. And I I kind of, I really dug this. I thought this was a, a really fun watch and probably the best of the movies we're talking about this week for me at least. What did you think of Oxygen, Will? I would also say it's the best of the movies this week, slightly by default, but also like you said, I think it works on its own merits. Um, I don't think it's doing anything terribly new. I mean, like you said, it, it harkens back to a lot of other fairly recent uh, one woman show or one man show type movies. Um, and I, I don't think this one, it's, it's painting with a very broad brush in terms of its narrative. Um, I think at one point this was supposed to be an Anne Hathaway movie that was going to be, I guess, a little bit yeah. more Hollywoodized. And I can still kind of see the Hollywood version of this peeping out. But like you said, I, I do appreciate that for one, this movie, uh, I think it's French sensibilities ultimately went over. And I think that makes it a little bit more interesting. It takes a little bit more uh, creative risk. And it also has a little bit more stylistic choices that I, I think uh, are a little bit more appealing. But also this movie, um, I have to assume because they shot it in July of 2020, it's not incidental that this project came together during COVID. Right. And uh, at a few points, the movie is outright explicitly like this is about covid <laughs> um but in a way that i didn't find it grading or like too on the nose like some other movies we've gotten of late um you know certainly like bringing back in hathaway like thinking back to something like lockdown uh this is certainly more preferable in that you know i think you could watch this out of context with covid and still enjoy it because it's fairly tightly wound like i said it is trying to do a lot but it's also just focused primarily on million lanard's performance uh and i think that's quite good as i was mentioning is, to you, is that how you pronounce it Mila, is it melanie I, melanie you're gonna ask me how you pronounce the name i don't know i <laughs> well she's french yeah. so uh, you know and i don't speak french so i i just want to make sure i'm pronouncing it correctly but oh i have no i mean uh Melian Lene. Well, the I, emphasis, I think, I think is... is on the E, so it's Melanie, I think. Oh, is it? I believe. I, well, look, we are... <laughs> if you're listening, more than, I apologize. Yeah, I apologize as well. Yeah. Nothing but apologies from the Cinemahawks gang. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, she's a wonderful actress, and I think she does a great job here. And it's nice to see her uh, have a star vehicle, not only because um, she's primarily a supporting actress in a lot of things like Beginners and Inglorious Bastards Enemy. and um, Enemy, yeah. But uh, she's been directing a lot of late, which uh, unfortunately I haven't had a chance to see her directorial features, but I've been hearing a few of them are pretty good. Like I think she did one called Breathe in 2014 that's supposed to be like a like coming of age French type movie that's supposed to be quite good. And, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, I know she's done some short films, right? Is that a short film or is that feature length? 
No, no, she did a couple features. Like she did Galveston a few years ago. That's like a an adaptation of uh, Nick Pizzolatto's book. And then she did a coming of age film called Breathe from 2014, if I'm not mistaken. And she might have done one or two other films as a director, but primarily she's been focusing on doing stuff behind the camera. So that's why I was surprised to see her uh, not only in front of the camera again, but a film that demands her be on screen for basically the whole entire thing. And uh, I I thought she did a great job. I know she's doing a movie or her next movies coming out later this year isn't it the the nightingale it's not related to the jennifer kent one but um oh yeah she's directing that one with the the fan yeah dakota fanning and l fanning i think yeah i've heard about that um i think that got delayed due to COVID, so that's maybe why she um jumped on this project but um yeah i mean you know like i said it's, it's been a long time since i can recall her doing a film in front of the camera let alone as a star vehicle and i, I think she's probably the main reason why i found myself so appealed to this film all right, I looked it up, and I think the way you pronounce her name is Melanie Laurent. Melanie Laurent. Melanie Laurent. Yes, essentially. So, okay. we'll try it. <laughs> yeah, this movie's Melanie Laurent. This this movie's you know similar to Woman in the Window. It's been through some stuff. Uh, I think Numi Rapace was also supposed to be uh, replacing Anne Hathaway, and then oh yeah, yeah yeah that fell through as well. I think Aha was always on in here as like a producer, but then yeah, eventually they just kind of reshuffled the deck during COVID last year. And here we have Oxygen. And I kind of wish this movie had been released at a different time because it's kind of like in this glut of other releases. And, you know, it's, it's an okay time to release a sci-fi film, to be sure. But this didn't even release on a Friday. I mean, this released a couple of days before everything hit. It was, And it, it's not the big Netflix of the movie of the week. And I think that's a shame. I think they're kind of like maybe almost like a alert not allergic but averse to this being french language and assuming people are gonna like not be into it because of subtitles although there is that thing now where like now if you watch like a netflix movie it like defaults to the dubbed over stuff which i hate and i have to change it all the time no i oh wait the dub yeah it was it went to the dub for you yeah huh it does that for me for a lot of things subtitle for me Every time I try to watch oh, something new weird. that is in a different language, like when I started watching Lupin, it defaults to the English dubbed voiceover. And I have to manually switch it every episode back to the original pronunciations. It's so frustrating. Um, I don't know why that is. Well, where are you watching these films? It's called Netflix. Like on your... Yeah, no, I don't. <laughs> but I mean, like, are you watching it through your TV? Different things. Yeah, TV, iPad, um, and on TV, it's like Apple TV. So okay. I, I don't know what the deal is, man. I just I just want to hear people's real voices. Cause I I watched this in both on my TV and my laptop. Like I had to switch uh, halfway through, and both times it went directly to the subtitle version. I never played the dub version. Maybe so. it's a settings thing. Maybe yeah. Maybe you have it set to the right thing, and I'm just yeah. I don't know. Goofing over here. I didn't have that that issue, but um, I'm not. I'm sure you're not alone. I just that that was an issue for me. Yeah. Also in this movie is Matthew Amari. We just hear his voice as the as the uh, sort of Sal 2000 knockoff Milo and pretty effective vocal performance, too. And then also Malik Zidi plays a man named Leo. We start to kind of slowly get to know over the course of the movie through flashbacks. Did you call him Sal 2000? Sal. Oh, I was thinking of Recess. <laughs> I think it recess you know, you, you, you think of how 2000 <laughs> how 2001 <laughs> well I saw I I've always done that because uh I saw recess before I saw 2001 a space odyssey 
<laughs> so like I've never been able. I always default. Was oh, that a parody? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in Recess, there's okay. an episode where they have like a new playground system called Sal, and so like yeah, that's embarrassing. Um, but I'm just gonna lean into that. But no, this movie is super effective, and there there were times in this when I I was a little bit I was like, well. How is she going to get out of this? How is she going to, what would, there were a couple times like very early in the film. I was like, well, why don't you just do this, 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 or this? And then at the end of the movie, she does that. And I'm like, she could have done that the whole time. (laughs) There's stuff like that. Like I was like, uh, you know, sometimes the movie's pretty clever. Sometimes I think that like it plays into something like it's a big revelation of like, oh my gosh, only a genius like her could think. And it's like, I think most people will kind of call a lot of what's going on in this movie. There were a few things that took me totally by surprise though. Um, Almost to the point where it feels a little bit out of nowhere, like what's really going on. But then some stuff definitely matches where like, if you call it early on, it doesn't ruin the movie at all, but it is one of those things. It's like, yes, I had a feeling that was what the case was. And it really matches like what you're seeing. And it's, it's one of those twists that feels inevitable, not just like shocking for the sake of it. So yeah, this is a pretty effective, this is like one of those movies I would recommend to people who are like really like for whatever reason, I don't know a lot. I do not know a lot of these people, but if you like claustrophobic sci-fi, this is certainly going to deliver. Yeah, I mean, generally, I think it works. Like I said, I, I do agree with you that, um, I guess, like I said, the broad, predictable aspects of it kind of grate me because I think they're working against what otherwise I think is a pretty efficient uh, one-woman show thriller film that is pretty resourceful in terms of like getting interesting angles out of this one location and allowing, uh, let me see if I can get this right, Melanie Lanet? Lynette? Melanie Laurent. Laurent, sorry, Laurent. Um, Melanie Laurent, uh, you know, to really just showcase her uh, undervalued star power as an actress. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, I I think what works here really works enough to where I can uh, overlook some of the stuff that I did find kind of predictable and shallow or a little bit grating in terms of like, you know, like it, it, you have to like kind of like indulge the movie in certain aspects to like allow it to be a 90 to 100 minute narrative. Because like if, they, if she had figured something out early on it would have been only 30 minutes long <laughs> and it's just like okay yeah, yeah fine whatever um I, yeah but um yeah i mean even despite that um my only real thing was that uh yet again this is the type of film i kind of wish i saw in theaters because like uh seeing this on netflix i don't think it's bad i, I admire the accessibility but i feel like the claustrophobia would have been more effective in the theater that's kind of the same issue that i had with the um joseph gordon levitt film uh from last year that we covered uh what was that seven five zero zero um oh i was gonna say i was like trial of chicago seven no 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 um well he wasn't <laughs> that as well but um the one where it's like know. another kind of like uh chamber yeah. thriller kind of thing um and you know i mean i, I find these type of films very appealing and because there's an urgency to them that's that's always uh, ref- uh renewing itself and uh, generally speaking, they keep the the stakes kind of closely knit, so I can find it pretty uh, readily engaging. But um, yeah, I found this to be a pretty likable little uh, taunt chamber thriller. Yeah, I think I think Melanie Laurent kills it in this. I mean, she has to for any of this to really work. And I, I felt for her. I thought that whenever she is like panicking and she is like trying to calm herself down, all of that was really believable. It was watchable without it being like, oh, I don't want to watch somebody go through this. And that's so hard to do. It's so difficult to do. I think that like a movie like that can overplay on our sympathies a bit. 
And I think this movie knew just the right moments to pull it back and let her sort of like show us a moment of competence that she's still in control of the situation. And I also think the score kind of helps guide us along in that respect too. I mean, it's just, it's just really competent in every respect. The only like real downsides of this movie I can pinpoint are that it's probably a little bit slightly too long. And as I mentioned before, the twists, a couple of the twists are a little bit out of nowhere to the point where it really just isn't set up very properly. And if, if it were up to me, I would cut out the last couple minutes of the movie because I, I think like what it does in the very end felt very much like a, I don't know, <laughs> I, I felt like you just didn't need it. Like I think ending it a different way would have been way more effective, like ending it, cheesy. cutting it a little bit short would have done more to bring closure to this movie in a kind of counterintuitive way almost. So at the same time, I, I, I really like this, even though I think it's going to be kind of limited by, I think a lot of people are not going to immediately be into a movie like this. And I, I totally understand that, especially if you, if you struggle with claustrophobia yourself and if you, you're just not in the mood to watch a single location film, I, I think that kind of thing could be really hit or miss. I will say to this movie's benefit, it gets a lot better as it goes along. I think the first 10, 15 minutes are a little bit slow, a little bit of a like, uh, whatever is this going? But it really picks up. And I think that it goes in some directions that I think are really satisfying to watch. So I'm a strong B on oxygen. What about you? I'm not too far from where you are. Um, I do agree with you. It does get better as it goes along. I don't think it's ever necessarily slow, but I do agree with you that it it does, it does um, I think, try to add a little bit more than it can really chew and it's constantly just trying to like keep the audience engaged to the point where I always kind of admire when it just is able to be a lot more simple and straightforward. But, um, you know, I think the, the star power of Melanie Lanier, it uh, pulls this off. And, uh, you know, I really enjoy the um, the direction and cinematography here. I, I think uh, Alexandre uh, Ahi, is that how you pronounce his name or is it Ahi? Alexandre Aha. Aha. Okay. So it's, I thought it was A-G-E. Is it A-J-A? It's A-J-A. Oh, okay. But for whatever reason, I thought it was A-J-E, whatever. But yeah, no, I think you know, he's good with this type of thing. Like we said, Crawl is another example of how it's a kind of throwaway B-movie, but he brings a lot of uh, his uh, taunt direction and his ability to, to make simple premises really pop, and that's no exception here. So um, if it weren't for some of the uh, predictable story beats, I think I'd give it a B as well, but I'm going to give it a very high B-. minus. I looked it up and it's Alexandre Aha. Aha, I think. Okay. Well, I apologize to him and Melanie Lanert. Sorry, I have to correct myself again. I said Aha again because it's like what I default to. It's Aja. It's because I bring Spanish into it. I'm sorry. That's okay. I mean, you you at least have an excuse. <laughs> I don't. So. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. Well, that is Oxygen. I definitely think it is worth seeking out on Netflix if you're looking for something a little deeper, a little bit more interesting than the usual streaming service fare we tend to get. It's just 101 minutes long. They kind of they kind of missed it, though. If it was 102, it would be 02. Well, that's what I thought they were going to do, but they didn't. Oh, yeah. You did message me about that. Yeah. And it's coming out in 20. It was supposed to come out in 2020, yeah. which backwards is 02. Mm-hmm. That's why they, yeah. That's why they uh, did a quiet release. They're so ashamed. I guess, yeah. And that's it for our show this week. Be sure to subscribe to us on all the social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, that's in the show notes. 
And next week we will be talking about Army of the Dead and a few other things we assume and uh, hoping to do some bonus content as well. We want to talk Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. We want to talk Killing of Two Lovers. We'll do what we can here. But yeah, it's... uh, it's been it's been an interesting time at the movies this summer. I'm almost wondering, do we need to do a summer movie preview? Is that is is that possible again? I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> if we had a if we had a light week, I think it would be doable. But uh, there's just so many movies coming. We can't pause for even a second sure. to look forward. So we're just gonna keep things moving. Yeah. Uh, there might be a possible fall movie preview option, depending on how uh, August or September looks, but we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Sounds good to me. Well, from the Internet California, I am John Agroni. And from the Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Will Ashton. See you next time.